And the very fact that there might have to be a, a judicial hardening that we've been talking about, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that Satan does a, a, a blinding to, to those who are rejecting the gospel. If you have total depravity, all of that's absurd. They're yeah. already they're already blind. They yeah. already can't see anything. And they're already hardened. Right. Yeah, that's that's good logic. These passages, rather than teaching Calvinism, they actually reaffirm. By, by talking right. about hardening, they reaffirm volition of Pharaoh, of Israel, and of these people. They're going to be vessels of mercy if they choose to be vessels of mercy. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript. Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. This week, we're going to hang out with Hudson Smelly, author of Deconstructing Calvinism, a Biblical Analysis and Refutation, this book right here, uh, which is available uh, on Amazon. Uh, Hudson is also the author of several books, including this one on 1 Peter. And then I also uh, happen to have his book on Hebrews uh, here as well. All excellent books, uh, worthy of your time and energy. Uh, but today we are going to be having a conversation about Calvinism specifically. Um, and, and by way of introducing Hudson, uh, I want to point out that he is a seasoned student in God's Word. Uh, he is a practicing lawyer in Texas and the Houston area. Uh, he's a mathematician, uh, a studied mathematician, a teaching elder in his local church, uh, the husband and father of seven kids. So this is one of the busiest men that you could possibly imagine. Uh, but uh, we're really grateful for his time. Hudson, it's a privilege to have you with us, uh, for you to carve out a moment. But uh, we would love, uh, as, as we usually do when we have a new guest on the show, uh, we would love for you to share a little bit about your life and and how you came to know Jesus Christ and, and, uh, and, and what your salvation was like, what your, your testimony in terms of your development and growth in God's Word has been. Sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me. I appreciate the ministry you're doing. I've, I've been looking forward to our call today. Um, I was raised in a small town outside of Houston, Texas. It's called Huffman, Texas. My parents didn't go to church, but they figured out that you can get rid of the children on a Sunday morning for free at the local Baptist church, and they did that. Uh, starting at about age four, and I went to Sunday school. And, you know, one of those Sunday school teachers, I actually thought the man's name was Deacon. Uh, I didn't realize that was a, a thing. Uh, <laughs> and so Mr. Deacon, as I thought he was, uh, led me to the Lord around age age 12, and then I got baptized there. So it's just, I say that because I'm one of those kids that I think a lot of folks volunteering their time, they couldn't know that years later I'd go to seminary and do those kinds of things. But um, never take for granted the fruit of, of, you know, the ministry you do with children. And I didn't know a lot of Bible, but I knew it was true. And, and I would eventually, uh, you know, as a teenager, stop going to church, but I had that foundation. And then uh, about the first year of law school in 1995, 1996, I started going to church again. And, and I started really studying. I uh, did some things we might talk about later that kind of got me into the Calvinist direction. But I began really, really studying. And, and since that time, um, I've uh, been an avid studier of the Bible, you know, from then until to total day. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so, you know, you grew up. You, you said you spent some time outside of church, but when you came back, it really it really took. And and in your adult adult years, you were much more fervent about knowing God's word. Um, 
maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to a place where uh, you considered yourself a, a Calvinist. Sure. I, I, I think it, and I think it's a, a helpful uh, story to see because I understand we, where people are coming from when they tell me that they're, they're Calvinist. There was a local Bible college in Houston, Texas called the College of Biblical Studies, and they offered a free class. Then the second class that I took was a systematic theology by uh, one of their lead professors, very articulate, very confident in himself. And in one class meeting, I came out a Calvinist. I didn't know a lot. I certainly couldn't vet what he was saying. But during the unfolding of the rest of the semester, I became more and more committed uh, to all five principles of Calvinism. And that's really what, what happened. Um, you fast forward, that, that's in uh, 1999 or 2000. Fast forward a few years later, um, I began with my family going to a new church. It's something called an independent Baptist church. I had no clue what that was. But I started going. It would turn out to be very much a Bible teaching church. And just over the course of time, that started to uh, put some questions in my heart. But what, what it really came down to was taking some of those uh, key verses, trying to fashion the best arguments I could for an interpretation other than the one I had accepted. And in that process didn't happen overnight, but it started to unravel things. It started to give me some doubts in Calvinism. And ultimately, I would write a book, not the one that you, you currently have, but a, a first version. That book wasn't for anybody else. That was my journey out. Because if I could put it into writing cogently why these verses aren't supporting Calvinism, then I, then I could see my way out. Mm. So how did that affect you in terms of your life? Uh, what are the, the ways in which your life changed and your perspective on your faith changed coming out of Calvinism? Well, it has a number of practical consequences, one of which is just dealing with, with other people. Um, I, I don't say this for other people, but for me personally, Calvinism appealed to pride. Uh, it enabled me to feel like I knew a whole lot when I really didn't know a whole lot. I enjoyed that other people um, were, were, you know, they didn't like it. They, they resisted it. Yeah. Look what I know. And, and so it was, a, it was a humility experience. So that was important. But it also, in practical terms, I'm in an independent Baptist church. We do invitations. I was told you don't need invitations. After all, you know, God's going to uh, irresistibly draw people or not. So why are you wasting time with invitations? So I started, you know, any kind of uh, maybe critical heart I had about things we were doing we was removing that, saying, wait a second, this matters. This is important. Why not have an invitation? See if somebody wants to ask a question or, or what have you. And, and so those were a couple of ways. And most importantly, um, the, the nature of God is different. Is he a God that loves all and died for all or not? Right. So it, it changes, it changes your perspective on the nature of God, a God who micromanages or a God who has created us in his image, including volition, just like right. God has volition. So those were practical things that changed for me. You and I, uh, briefly talked about this before, but the idea that, that, Calvinism tends to appeal to young people. You were young when you, you know, came to a place where you were, you were considering Calvinism uh, theologically and, and you came to that place. Uh, why, why do you think that is? And, and why is it important for us to, as Bible teachers, uh, to really invest in young people in order to inoculate them against uh, aberrant ideas? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I have to be careful with how I say this because I realize it's, it's easy to paint sometimes with too broad a brush. But we're very idealistic when we're young, 
And we're also very, you know, we all want to be a bit different from our parents. And so as a young person, uh, it, it kind of transfers over to, okay, here's what this church is saying and what the pastor is saying. But now I have a bit of the secret sauce. And it gave me this sense that I really had much of the Bible and certainly the most important part of the Bible, how, how you actually become a Christian. I had it all figured out, all in a box with a bow on it. And it appeals to a pride. Pride's always there. Uh, but especially when we're younger, uh, we have more of it. Hopefully when we get older, we, we get more humility. But that's, that's just a big part of it. What we, but, but, you know, at the same time, uh, one good thing about uh, being young is it's because you're, you're idealistic and you're at the same time asking questions, people are asking questions. What we need to do is be there to provide good, strong answers, uh, biblical answers, as well as is helping them in a methodology for how you study the Bible. And it's certainly not uh, from just jumping from one text to another. Mm -hmm. And we, and when you don't have the answers, uh, when you don't have the knowledge set or you haven't done the studying yourself, it puts you in a dilemma. And uh, it just reminds us that it's important that we make full proof of our ministry and, and that we learn to divide God's word for ourselves. It's very critical. We're going to spend some time studying today, which I'm really looking forward to. But uh, before we get into that, uh, there are a, a handful of what you refer to as pillar passages uh, in your book. You refer to them as pillar passages that, that Calvinists use to support their soteriology and their general approach to, to, to the scriptures. Explain what you mean by pillar passages. Sure. So, you know, I've read a lot of books that Calvinists wrote, and uh, I read a lot of them putting together the book that I've, that I've written. They all have proof text. They have uh, proof propositions followed by a proof text, you know, just a long list of verses that supposedly uh, teach that principle. What I found was, as you start sifting through the proof text, they're not all created equal. A Maybe. lot of them are just extraordinarily weak, but there are some that superficially I'm like, yeah, well, maybe this could be some evidence. So those those ones that at least at least on first read look like they might support some aspect of this, I call them the pillar verses. Uh, they're the columns holding up the structure. They're the weight-bearing members. And in reality, when they fall, everything falls because there's a whole bunch of stuff in that proof list that, you, frankly, you don't even need to take it seriously. It's those pillar passages, maybe one of which we're, we're going to look at today, but yeah, so, so it, you know, and as a lawyer, I always want to say, well, you know, where's the real fight at? Well, the real fight's at these pillar passages. Uh, tell us why contextualization is really important and, and why proof texting without context can be dangerous to our study. Sure. I, I think we start with, you know, what, what is proof texting? What are we talking about? You, you offer something that you claim the Bible teaches. It's a truth proposition. Uh, it's going to be true or false. And it's followed by uh, a set of parentheses, probably with a bunch of verses listed. And that certainly suggests that it has a lot of support. Those verses are potential evidence. Real biblical evidence is the result of careful exegesis in uh, the, the immediate context of a passage or verse and the larger context, a larger unit of thought in the book or the whole book, where we're forced to ask questions, not only to interpret in context, but ask ourselves big questions like, does this verse and the way I'm interpreting it fit the context, fit the overall argument of the book? Does it make sense of the structure that this verse teaching this idea should be here? And so we, we begin asking those questions. That avoids, hopefully, the, the danger part that you raise. With that in mind, 
when we're looking at the context of a passage, what are some important questions that we need to ask ourselves in order to to ground ourselves within the whole of that passage or or that book or even you know as we get broader and broader uh, the Pauline epistles or the New Testament as a whole, how do we expand on uh, a verse in order to understand the important elements of context? Sure, uh, I, I think. The way I think of it, and this has always helped me, first of all, if I'm going to study a book, I like to read through that book several times before I really get down to the brass tacks on a particular passage. Know what the whole book says. That is, you you won't read through the whole thing and say, well, now I understand every verse, but you see the connections, you see the tie-ins. John's Gospel is a good example. You read the word believe over and over. Nicodemus shows up more than once. He talks about the water in John 4, that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty. Then the bread in John 6, if you eat it, you'll never be hungry. These connection points bind up the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the book has a purpose statement in chapter 20. That's a big help. Very few books kind of just tell us straight up, this is the reason we, this is written. And, and, and then uh, from that, I start focusing in on smaller units of thought. But I have a big picture in mind. What is the big argument of John's gospel? He tells us in chapter 20. What's the big argument of the book of Romans? Whatever my interpretation is, it's going to be within the scope of that argument because God mm-hmm. wrote it. He's not just all over the place. And, and then I start looking at, at, at the, the immediate unit of thought. And you take like John 6, because John 6, 44 uh, says that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. I'm paraphrasing, but that's a, one of those pillar passages. Mm-hmm. What is the unit of thought? What is the bigger context? If you back up from it, it begins in chapter 5. Most of chapter 5 sets up chapter 6, and, and you have to read it together. And when you do, yeah. it helps you put, put color on what's happening in John 6, 44. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing. Questions I ask, if you have a particular interpretation, why does it make sense to have that interpretation here as opposed to somewhere else? Why does it make sense of the argument? John's making an, an argument. Uh, typically, his focus is on getting uh, people on, on spiritual matters and understanding they have to trust in Christ. He's got a mm-hmm. fairly simple message that way. How does how does the interpretation fit the argument, right? And and those are important. And, and to your point, you know, uh, we understand that the Gospel of John has a unique audience in that it goes beyond a Jewish audience, and it really yeah. focuses on a Gentile audience. And, and we know that the other ga- gospels, particularly Matthew, uh, focuses on a Jewish audience. How does audience play into that? Because this is going to be relevant, I think, to our study today. The, the audience uh, in the passage we're looking at is really important. So how does audience play into the context? The, you know, the audience matters a lot. And it, in fact, I think it sometimes is critical because as you say, like Matthew, Matthew is clearly a Jewish gospel. I don't mean that they get a different gospel, but what I mean is um, this gospel has the same purpose as the others. It is evangelistic. However, it's written to a Jewish audience. So it addresses particular issues that Jewish people were concerned about. You see that the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. The book's not chronological. It has bookends on the teaching ministry, those two sermons I just referenced. And, and what they care about is, is dealing with the, the theology of the Pharisees, uh, a works or performance gospel that Jesus really pushes against. And then the question about the kingdom and, and what's going to happen with all that. And so Matthew deals with these peculiarly Jewish issues that if you were a Gentile, you, you may not have much concern with. But you take mm-hmm. something like the book of James. 
a lot of the interpretation there uh, strays one direction or the other based on who people think the audience is. Many people say it's a mixed group. He's got a bunch of non-believers. Um, uh, you know, they just they're pretenders, they're fakes. Um, and yet John or, or um, James rather 19 times calls them brethren. He, he insists that they're believers mm-hmm. and, and many people insist they're not. But if they're believers, then we think James probably isn't trying to get them saved. That that's already been taken care of. If you think it's a mixed group, then maybe you start interpreting the verses different. I hope mm-hmm. that that helps. And that comes to bear, of course, on Romans. So um, yeah. asking, asking the audience is such a, a preliminary question that's important. Uh, and it's one that gets a lot of debate. Yeah, yeah, but I think you know the the good news is about Romans. I think I think for the most part we do know uh, you know what that audience was probably like, and so you've agreed, uh, thankfully, to hang out with me and to to study Romans chapter nine, which is one of these uh, pillar passages that you refer to that Calvinists often use uh, to uh, support a, a particularly election and and the idea of of, of unconditional election. Um, uh, the God, the idea, the concept that God before time uh, pre predestined certain people to salvation and certain people to judgment in hell, and um, and that He does that as He sees fit. We don't understand it, but uh, but it falls to His sovereignty and His will, and we need to just come to agree with that. And so Romans nine becomes a passage that's often used to to, to support that, and so. If you don't mind, before we get into reading, we're going to actually read it, and we're going to we're going to try to exegete it with the time that we have together. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of info on Romans nine as you see it, uh, just to set up the passage and give us an idea of where we're going. Yeah, I, I think the the way to jump into Romans nine is to start with the bigger picture. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're going to study Romans, study Romans. Don't study Romans nine. Um, there's a time to talk about Romans nine, but you look at the whole book. Um, this this is Paul writing to a church. He's never been there. He says he hopes to come. Uh, we're pretty sure he wrote it in the late AD 50s. And it's in Rome, and it's a mixed audience. It's clear as you go through it, just high level. Uh, he has Jews and Gentiles in this church, and it's what, we, it's what we would expect. It's very tightly organized, and at a high level, you have three sections. The first eight chapters, chapters 9 through uh, 11, and then, and then uh, the rest of the book, 12 through, through the end of it, in a high level. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you zero in on, on the organization a little more, what you see is uh, a thematic statement in the first chapter that, that he is going to talk about the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and that everyone, as it turns out, has meaning. It's, it's both Jew and Gentile, because that seems to be um, the secondary purpose of the book, the primary one may be to, to to kind of explicate this gospel message, but then some Jewish Gentile issues. And, and it just seems like in the first four chapters, he deals with justification. Uh, then he moves into sanctification, glorification, and brings it to a close at the end of chapter eight with this beautiful statement. Uh, at the end of eight, he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature She'll be able to separate us from the love of God. And then you have to say, but aren't the Jewish people separated? See, yeah. it kind of sets up what becomes a bit of a parenthesis in chapter 9 through 11. The issues there uh, were raised a little bit, chapter 2 and 3, some Jewish issues. But he wants to go into further detail. If the book had went immediately from chapter 8 to chapter 12, we might not have noticed. 
because yeah, chapter yeah. 12 starts with a therefore. But he has this parenthesis where it's clear he's dealing with these issues about the nation of Israel. Uh, and that helps us understand. And then, of course, he has application um, that follows. The structure matters because we shouldn't find ourselves in planting into chapter 9 something that if Paul wanted to give a, an overview of justification, for example, it should have been in chapter 3 and 4. Yeah, he, he's already left justification behind. You shouldn't need chapter 9, 10, and 11 to figure out how people get justified. He's already covered it. This is right. an example of the kind of ways in which structure matters. So to that point, I want you to expand on that once I've read this portion of Scripture and help us to understand how 9 begins to fit within that context and how that, that parent, uh, parenthesis begins. But I'll start here in verse 1, and I'll read, read through verse 8 and, and then let you uh, uh, address it. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, uh, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall, they, shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed." And so there is obviously, there's a lot there, but um, to, to explain to us how this, this parenthetical moment begins, please, please make that connection between those first eight chapters and the beginning nine. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Paul has set out his soteriology in those first eight chapters, and, and he culminates with this beautiful passage that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in the background, there's this, this question about, about Israel. It's a question that Jewish people in his audience would have. It's a question that Matthew, to some degree, uh, addresses in, in his gospel because of that. Why is it that, that the Messiah, who was long promised and all the prophets, would finally come, and as a, you know, as a general matter, they would reject him? Not everybody. Uh, there's a remnant, the apostles and some others, but there's a lot of people that reject him. How can that be? And it raises the question that Paul makes his comment about in, in, in verse 6 after he, he says, I've got this great sorrow. Uh, Paul always preached to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. He mentions that earlier in the book, and, and he does that, but he finds a lot of heavy resistance. Um, you see that in a, in a number of places in the book of Acts. He goes mm -hmm. to the synagogue first. So here he is, and he's dealing with that. He says, I have great sorrow about that. But you need to understand something in verse 6. He says it's not as if the Word of God was of none effect. Um, someone might think, well, all this Old Testament, all the promises, all the covenants, it all came to nothing. Mm. But it didn't. But right. it didn't. That's what these chapters ended up being about. It didn't come to nothing, nor was God surprised. To that point, I mean, we'll come back to this as we conclude but he's setting up for us an explanation, a, a, a dissertation of sorts, of how God will fulfill his purposes in Israel that he's not done with them yet. Now, in a Calvinist perspective, um, you know, most Calvinists, most Reformed people in their theology are what we refer to as replacement in their view. 
And so just in order to help us understand where we're going here and, and why all of this is relevant, explain to us replacement theology and why it's relevant to this conversation. Sure. I mean, at a high level, the idea is that while God made all these promises in, in the Old Testament, Israel's disobedience has forfeited all those promised blessings. And the, the church with a capital C has, has now, now replaced it. And they're going to be the recipients of those, of those blessings. And even, um, you know, a family member of mine, he would always read the Old Testament and literally replace the word Israel with church. Yeah. Talk about replacement. And, and what Paul wants to make clear uh, in Romans 9 through 11 is exactly the opposite. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, uh, I think that's important for the setup. So I'm going to read verse 9 through, tw- uh, through 13, and then we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, verse 9 says, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had received by one, even by our father Isaac, for the, uh, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Uh, could you explain how this passage is often misread and misunderstood? Yes, I, I think what, what throws people off here is, is this word um, election, right? It's just mm-hmm. the fact that it's there. And, and we probably should say some more about that word uh, because it may not mean what people usually think it means. But that said, um, people find unconditional election here. And especially, I've heard it quoted so many times, Jacob have I loved, Esau have, have I hated. There it is. God picked one and, and not the other. And there's a mm-hmm. host of problems with that, um, even just superficially. It doesn't even pass the smell test. And then there's the context that we can get more into. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit, you know, I think what we run into in this passage, when people read election, obviously uh, they're struggling to understand exactly what that means. Now, you and I would say this is a moment for us to find out what that word election means without within the whole of Scripture. How is that word used uh, and how uh, we, we, we use that comparing scripture with scripture as an opportunity to let the Bible define its own terms versus imposing upon scripture uh, terms that, that we've come up with or that are man-made. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of us because this, this idea, this concept of election is going to keep coming up. But, but could you help us have a better understanding of what the word election means in scripture in terms of the context and how it's used in other places in the Bible? Sure. There tends to be an assumption that it means that something has been picked or selected. Mm-hmm. That simply isn't true. It is a possible uh, definition. Like English words, Greek words often have more than one definition. Context determines. Take the English word bark. Is it the skin of a tree or the sound a dog makes, right? We, we look at context, and we just seem to know from context. Uh, a helpful Bible study is, is, and you can do this online nowadays fairly easily, but go find all the passages in the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, what we call the Septuagint, that use this uh, adjective, eklektos. Uh, it is used as an adjective to describe people, animals, gold and silver, trees and plants, you know, food, all kinds of things. And, mm-hmm. and the reason is because um, it, it has a derived meaning that's actually its most common usage. The idea was, you know, it means picked, but then you start saying, well, 
you would always pick the very best. And so it became a word that meant the better best or the, the most excellent, the most the preferred. acceptable, preferred. Um, in English, we would even say choice, right? It, it could indicate not so much that the decision has been made, but that it's the best quality. And so what you find is uh, references repeatedly to David gathering together his translated as his young men or his mighty men, but the word is, is what we use in the is elect, is how it's in the New Testament. Good. That carries over into many of the New Testament passages. Almost all of the passages don't say anything about a time when people were picked or any of that stuff. It's just used as an adjective of Jesus, of one of the churches that, uh, that um, a John writes to, those kinds of things. A, a good example is Matthew 22. Um, Verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen, which looks like a verb, but it's actually our adjective of collectos. And so don't, we don't want to assume it. Now, can it, can it have that meaning uh, of, of something being picked? Yes, context will, will determine. And so that's with that background, you know, we go look at this and, and we can glean what it means here, I think. To get back to the, the, to the passage itself, you know, I think one of the things that we do, especially with the story of Jacob and Esau, um, we have a tendency to confuse uh, God's foreknowledge and his foreordination. Uh, so what we, what we do is we, we like to imagine, uh, you know, if we're looking at it the wrong way, we like to imagine that God in his foreordination had determined ill for Esau and determined that with Jacob, he was going to bless Jacob, but he was, he was going to, to, uh, hate, and I think the word hate is worthy of, of us talking about, uh, you know, hate in our sense, we like to use that word the way we want to use it or the way we imagine it used in our, in our current vernacular. But, but um, as though he's refusing Esau outright and he's receiving Jacob uh, to be uh, ultimate, the, ultimately the one that he truly loves. And then we use this as an allegory for uh, God's approach to the New Testament believer that he has somehow chosen some, those he loves, to salvation, and he's and he's refused in his in his foreordination uh, some to to uh, be judged and, and to to be disregarded. And so maybe explain to us that confusion that we make almost yeah. immediately with Jacob and Esau. Right. So so what happens? Like I said, people zero in on this election, and um, what I suggest by talking about the meanings of the words is there's a common sense in which it speaks to the excellence of something, even when it's using the noun as it is here or the verb, you can have the idea of, of someone bestowing that excellence on somebody or, or seeing that excellence in them. And, and I think that may be at least a part, but certainly God is making a choice in real, you know, as he's done about the lineage of Christ is really what mm -hmm. this comes down to. Yeah. Promises are made to Abraham. They're passed on to Isaac, uh, not Esau, or not um, uh, Ishmael. Then they're passed on from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. And we get this verse as it's written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Um, these words, love and hate, are used in the Old Testament. You see it in the Proverbs. They're somewhat idiomatic uses, and they have to do with bestowing blessings or not. Not uh, an ill intent and certainly not a hostility. This is about uh, God's choice, and it was his to make, that this, this set of promises provided to Abraham that are repeated to the patriarchs is going to go through um, a Jacob and not Esau. And that's all it means. And in fact, if you read a Genesis, 
the, the accounts, it's not the case that Esau was not blessed. It's not the case. You don't see any hostility toward him in that sense in which maybe people write it here. And certainly this says nothing about um, uh, their, their eternal destiny. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. There's right. no reason to believe Esau's not a believer. Right. And again, we can't confuse the fact that God has, knows all things. He exists outside of time. He sees past, present, and future as a single moment. Uh, it's no problem for him to to see, you know, those that would choose him from a free will, from the perspective of free will. He can see them from before the foundation of the earth, and then from that position, uh, refer to them as elect, right? Uh, that he has selected for them uh, blessing. And so, you know, in First Peter 1, 2, he says, elect according to the the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit under obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He has determined certain things. He's elected certain things for those that he knew in his foreknowledge would receive him. And I, I think that I think that these are all very compatible ideas, uh, but they are difficult often for uh, someone who comes from a Reformed perspective. Well, I think so. And, and what you have to look at, and it's what you're hitting on, first of all, let's talk about foreknowledge for a moment. People need to understand that from a reform perspective, it is because God has predetermined everything without exception that he has foreknowledge, right? Uh, uh, that's not formally part of the five, uh, you know, sort of principles of, of Tulip Calvinism, but the Council of Eternal Decrees is what it's usually referred to. Um, that is the old Stoic belief. That is a mainstay of, of Stoicism. It was brought into the church and, and, uh, and, and not, not well accepted until the Reformation. But if God predetermined everything, of course, he predetermined your salvation. But that script is the basis for the foreknowledge. A non-Calvinist view is God actually has foreknowledge without a script. Uh, he can know the end from the beginning on stuff, but he hasn't scripted these things, predetermined them. He has what I, I refer to as real foreknowledge. And in, in those few places where the writers uh, do link up some concept, some use of the word elect or election to uh, salvation, they bring in foreknowledge. We see that in mm-hmm. one of Paul's uh, you know, verses. It's often looked at in well here in, in Peter. You notice the, the elect here is, um, you know, it can read like a verb to us. It's not. It's the adjective again. Uh, and, and that matters because frequently when God's talking about us as elect, what he is doing is speaking of our excellence. We are in union with he who is definitely elect. He is the most excellent of excellence, right? And so are we in Christ. And we have that as, a, as an attribute. And, and this is according to God's knowledge. He wasn't surprised. But how did it happen? Was it because he picked us? No, he says explicitly through sanctification of the Spirit. It happened in real time. When you placed faith in Christ, you were set apart by the Spirit of God. There's no reference in the New Testament to um, a lost person who's described as being elect. Not the one I'm, none I'm aware of. So this is a reality that's meant to uh, encourage us, not merely that we're we're a believer, but that we have, that that from God's perspective, we are choice. We are excellent. Um, that's why Jesus would say in Matthew 22 that um, many are called, but few are eclectos. Everybody who's accepted the gospel is now eclectos. Yeah, there are certain things that, that God has predestined to be true of everyone that would receive him. It's a very, it's a very similar usage of, of the mm-hmm. word. 
uh, in you know Ephesians chapter one verses five and eleven, we see it's used to describe the inheritance that that all those that are elect in Christ, all those that are found in Him, uh, would receive blessing and and things like adoption is a part of the the the, uh, the salvation process. Is that you receive many promises that come along with that that are predestined for all those that come to Christ. That's right. And, and when you actually look into what Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 2, he kind of sums it up and says, you have, I think it's verse 3, all spiritual blessings mm-hmm. in the heavenly places. It is a total new reality. Uh, we need to catch hold of that. That being in Christ is a new reality. We're not yesterday Christians stuck in yesterday and our, and our sin and all those things that held us back. We're today and tomorrow Christians in unity with Christ, and we have all the blessings. He died, we died. He was raised, we were raised. I'm saying that in the past tense on purpose. It's one of the reasons you can't lose your salvation. From God's perspective, you're resurrected already. You're in perfect Mm -hmm. unity with Christ. He sits at the right hand of the Father, so do we. He's elect, so are we. All these things become true because we're now in Christ. They were not true before of us. We were, according to Ephesians 2, alienated. Um, and uh, so anyway, it, it helps to to see that and, and, and not kind of just put too much into this word elect or election and, and maybe give too much credit toward a, um, you know, a Calvinist interpretation of it. Um, you know, that's important. But also, there's all kinds of choices God can make and has made that you might call an election. It has nothing to do with salvation. Right, right. So, you know, we, as we know, I mean, Esau would, would trade away his birthright. Um, God did not predetermine Esau's decision. Now he, he foreknew it uh, mm-hmm. and he declared his foreknowledge. In fact, prophetically, we, you know, we find in scripture that, that God being outside of time had no problem making a prophetic declaration uh, to his, to his prophets that, that mm-hmm. Esau would ultimately refuse his birthright. But we get into this business of, of Pharaoh, and the question becomes, did did Pharaoh have a free will? And I think that's what we kind of need to get to uh, now, because because that's the next Old Testament picture that's painted for us by Paul when addressing Israel. And so in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Then Is there unrighteousness with God? Uh, which is a really relevant question, I think, even to what we're talking about, you know. Uh, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid... For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he harden so the question for us, you know, as we begin to to study this in in its context, both in Romans but also in Exodus, did God create Pharaoh with the sole purpose raise him up into power, uh, only to be a mechanism of wickedness? Uh, did did Pharaoh have a say in any of that, um, or did God just make him with the intention uh, that he he be used uh, and then discarded? So, so that's the question. The question for you. <laughs> sure, and and the the answer is God did not raise a Pharaoh up uh, merely to, as you say, kind of use him and, and discard him. Um, I think we we need to back up just a, a little to see the lead into this. But all this mm-hmm. stuff where Paul starts talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what's he really talking about? 
you know, he started in verse six. He says, you need to know the word of God has not been of none effect. And, and he makes a, a powerful statement. Not all who were of Israel are Israel. That's something he said in chapter two. He said, it's not being circumcised in the flesh that makes you a real Jew. It's being circumcised in the heart. It's being actually regenerate. This thing he talked about, Romans 3 and 4, about having by faith righteousness. And so when he gets to Romans 9, he's touching on something he said there, but he's building it out. And, and making that statement, you have to understand from a Jewish perspective, that's a strong statement. The mm-hmm. Pharisees, it's, it's noted, were often teaching that every Jewish person would be in the kingdom. So mm-hmm. to hear that God is not, in fact, going to show mercy on every Jewish person without exception, um, not all who are of Israel, not all who are in the line of, of course, Israel being a name for Jacob, not everyone who's in the line of, of Jacob is really a part of this true Israel. And you say, wait a second. So then he begins teaching by analogy. And his analogy is, look, you realize that not everybody who's in the lineage of Abraham is, is actually Jewish. You have Ishmael, for example. And, and then the line of promise comes through. And even though uh, Jacob and Esau have the same, the same mom, they're born at the same time, the line of blessing, the Jewish blessing, only comes through one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's God's prerogative. And that's a sense in which he has shown mercy or withheld, but it's not in, in terms of who's going to heaven or hell. It's in terms of this line of blessing. And so with that in mind, he makes this, this next statement about, you know, God can, can show mercy or withhold mercy. Uh, he's quoting from Exodus and using it in the context of, of Moses, but then he gives us this illustration of, of Pharaoh. He's never jumped ship to talk about uh, picking individuals for salvation. Uh, what he was talking about was the line of blessing, particularly the promises to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob, but not Esau. That's what Esau lost out on. He took it. He took a can of soup in his place, but that's what he lost out on. It has nothing to do with his eternal destiny. And, and then even beyond that, though, Paul's point is not every child of Jacob in his lineage is actually the Israel of God in this sense, the one that's circumcised in the heart. And it's this, it's this showing mercy, though, comes into place because he's got to talk about how the word of God would be effective or not. And what you're seeing in the current day when Paul writes, most of the Jewish people have said no. So what's going on? Mm-hmm. And God says, I'm showing mercy to some people and not to some others. And, and to build out that argument, to get to the point of saying, I'm showing mercy on those Jewish or Gentile people who place faith in Christ. They're the recipients of mercy. To get there, he talks about Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh was raised up. That He wasn't created for destruction. Uh, God brought him to political power. God has a history of doing that. He did it yeah. with Joseph. Uh, he did it with Joseph. He did it with Moses. Well, in, in fact, uh, he promises that he does it with every authority on earth. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's right. We just we see multiple examples, and then it mm-hmm. makes it clear that you know, at the end of the day, God's in charge of the White House. So right. uh, so Pharaoh, the most powerful guy on the planet, is is going to um, be used to show God's glory. But but it's it's interesting, you know, what he ends up actually doing uh, with with Pharaoh. He says, I raised him up that I might show my power in him. This has nothing to do with the gospel message. And and this this hardening business, you say, well, what does that look like? It looks like Romans 1. Mm, Uh, Romans 1 says that God gives people over. That's the way in which his wrath is poured out in the present tense, not in the future. Wrath isn't talking about hell. He says that, that, the, that the wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness, and he gives, uh, and it, you know, he shows how that works. 
it's in response to the rejection, in response to those who exchange the truth for a lie, that he gives them over. And mm-hmm. that's what happens in Pharaoh. He's a good example of that. And, and you know, God says he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy. He had a lot of mercy on Pharaoh. How many chances did he give him in the book of Exodus? Right, right. right? Plague after plague. And then, and then Pharaoh comes crawling back, take the frogs away, take the flies yeah. away, clean the river for me. God does it. And, and, then, and then, of course, there's a time when God withholds the mercy, and he has the right to do this. This doesn't even speak to whether Pharaoh uh, was a believer or not. It just speaks to the fact that he has the prerogative to show or to withhold mercy. Right. And, and you know, a corollary to this, I think, you know, Romans chapter 1, uh, but other places in Scripture, decide, uh, uh, you know, decisively tell us that when one chooses to uh, withstand God and his convi- the conviction of his spirit, that he will give them over to reprobate mind. He'll, 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 he'll allow their conscience to be seared because it's what they've selected to begin with. In other words, it actually exemplifies free will uh, because Exodus uh, 5.2 tells us that that Pharaoh had already said, who is this Lord that I sh- should obey him? Like, who is this guy? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to obey your God. I don't need to acknowledge him. And so when we find, you know, two chapters later in Exodus 7, uh, verse 13, when God hardens his heart, that's a decision that Pharaoh had already made, uh, you know, prior to, to God intervening and giving him over to reprobate thinking. So yeah. I, th- I think that's really important. Well, and, and I, I think to add to that, think about what's happening here. If you're trying to prove unconditional election, you've actually got to take a verse or a piece of a verse and say, this proves this piece of unconditional election. He hasn't said anything about picking individuals. The context mm-hmm. of Pharaoh is not the gospel message. It's not even salvation. The command is let my people go. And he won't do it, right? And, and that's not a surprise to us. I mean, there's a number of reasons why the whole idea that, that the hardening of Pharaoh is, is somehow making it where he, you know, he, he can't respond in any other way. Yeah. God didn't need to do that. God takes his hands off, gives Pharaoh over. But if you think about it, why would it make any sense that God would have to harden him in the way some read it? That is, go inside his brain, his mind, or his heart, and, and, and make it kind of like uh, in Star Wars, you know, Obi-Wan using the force to... <laughs> to make the storm right. take a certain thing. God doesn't have to do that. I don't believe he ever does. But wait a second. Calvinism says he's depraved. He's a spiritual corpse, we're told. He can't respond to God at all. After all, what can a corpse do? Well, if that's true, why would God have to harden him anyway? Right. right? It's precisely because he has volition that, that, that the Calvinists deny that he is uh, hardened, it's in the context of this history of Exodus, as I said, it has nothing to do with responding to, to the gospel. And, and, and rather, it's in response to his resistance to God. God sends an old man named Moses and a stick, says, let my people go, and he says no. And right. that's the path down the Romans 1 spiral. Yeah, it's, that's really good. And, and I really appreciate you too. You keep bringing us back to the context. You keep bringing us back to this idea that, that this passage that we're in in Romans chapter 9 is really about the fate of Israel and whether or not they will come to belief. Uh, and whether or not, really the question is whether or not God's promises as it concerns Israel are true. Um, does God keep his promises? And, and so when we talk about Pharaoh, we talk about Jacob and Esau, 
the line of thinking here is not to, you know, is not to depart from that context and say, oh, oh well, suddenly now here, here, this is a little nugget of how uh, God's, uh, you know, predestination works or, or how unconditional election works or, or how he refuses some and receives other. It's again, like you're telling us, it has nothing to do with soteriology. It has to do whether or not uh, God is going to fulfill his promises uh, throughout time to his, to, to the nation that he's built. But that's right. And, and you know where it ends, right? It ends with Pharaoh having the mercy withheld. But the result of that, again, we're never told anything about uh, Pharaoh's eternal destiny. What he faced was ruin. His mm-hmm. army destroyed uh, him for, you know, we think maybe surviving, going back to Egypt. His son, is, his uh, firstborn has been lost. Um, God, you know, showed mercy, showed mercy, showed mercy, showed mercy, then withheld it. And the point is, that's what's happening with national Israel. That's mm-hmm. what the, the whole story of 9 through 11 is about. They're in a time when God has shown mercy. He will continue to show mercy, but there's going to be a time when he'll stop. And from right. Paul's perspective, you know, it's probably just uh, a dozen years out when, mm-hmm. when, when the city is destroyed in AD 70. So he will not always show the mercy. Uh, he'll withhold it. He has a right to do that. But even then, that is not about um, eternal destiny. That's about the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, you know what we discover too is that is that that the Jews are blinded in part, right? And you might you could use the word reprobate, reprobate, or you could use the word hardened. But they're they're blinded, and and they they come to a place where they they can't um, see. Uh, the goodness of Christ and the relevance of the the coming of the Messiah. They've they've been blinded for a time, and and that's again that's what he's suggesting here is that is that, that the Jewish people are coming to a place where it's going to grow harder and more difficult for them to see the reality of Jesus Christ as the Messiah that they've been awaiting. Well, that's that's right. Is is the, is the, is the uh, parenthesis continues through the balance of chapter eleven? Though what you see is God reversing it eventually. And the very way in which he reverses it, that he's going to have a time with the Gentiles and make them jealous, um, is totally contrary to a Calvinist perspective that all of this is either because you were elect or you weren't. You were picked for salvation or you were passed over. This is totally contrary to that. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So so then this this passage flows into another illustration uh, of God's power uh, to uphold his promise to Israel. Uh, so, so this time he uses the concept of a potter, and uh, this this passage, this portion of the passage, gets abused quite often. Uh, I think, yeah. uh, verse nineteen says, "Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, uh, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus?" Hath not the potter power over the clay uh, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And so this is a series of rhetorical questions that Paul is asking uh, to to create a conversation, again, within the context. And so how does this portion of scripture get misread? And then and then help us to, to better understand how we ought to read it in, in the whole of the passage. You know, it, it gets misread because people are looking for a place to bring in unconditional election, which is about individual salvation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's just not in the text. Um, people want an answer, particularly the Jewish people in the church, to 
to what about national Israel? What's going on with them as a nation? And, and that's why he's going through. And yes, he uses Pharaoh as an example, but he's dealing with, with a nation. And, and, and then someone might say, it's like Paul anticipates and predicts the, the objection. And really he's using a kind of um, device that's used a lot in ancient literature called diatribe, where you, you pose a hypothetical objection and you say, oh, vain man or empty headed man or something to that effect. It's the, the pattern you see that in, uh, and in the book of James in chapter two and stuff. So right. he's, he's raising a predictable objection and, and then saying it's wrong. Right. And, and then, and so when he raises this objection and it's, it's again, it's, it's continuing the earlier line of reasoning. God is giving withholding mercy in the line of the patriarchs with Moses and the nation of Israel, even with Pharaoh, um, God can give withhold mercy as, as he wants. And someone basically says, well, wait a second, there is a hand. If that's the case, how would he hold anybody accountable? How would he hold Pharaoh accountable? And it sort of plays into that assumption that they don't have a choice, which is is not there. Paul's response, you know, is is God as a creator shouldn't be questioned on this. He borrows imagery from Jeremiah 18 about the potter and all that. Just as the potter has the right over the clay, the power of the clay, so God, here's the key, he has the right to extend it with whole mercy. Mm. Um, one of the mistakes is when the Bible teaches about an analogy, is is you, you you allow it to be an analogy, but then take it too literally, and you start saying, well, the, the creating the pots, that's God making individuals for heaven and hell, right? That's what people do to this passage, <laughs> and it is an analogy. Everybody knows that the person fashioning the pot has the ability and the right to shape it the way they want to shape it, uh, and and God, as the potter, it's not about him making the pot or making the vessel for uh, hell or heaven is about him extending or withholding the mercy. Yeah, so he really. has the power to do that and to harden whom he, he pleases, as he did with Pharaoh, and as he always does, but as a response to our initiating um, rebellion. Yeah, and I, I think what you're, the point you're making is really important as it concerns Israel, because I think uh, you know the idea that a vessel is under honor or, or dishonor really speaks to its purpose. Um, you know, again, not to its salvation or, or, you know, ultimate, you know, um, you know, destiny, uh, as it, as it concerns, uh, heaven or hell. And again, it's not an individual context, but what it is saying is the usefulness of that vessel, uh, is affected by what, what the potter determines. And, and so, you know, if Israel rejects the Messiah, if, if, if Israel is going to reject Jesus Christ, well, then it's God's prerogative to determine whether or not that vessel of honor uh, receives mercy or the vessel of dishonor uh, uh, does not receive that mercy and whether or not they need to go through a season of trial and tribulation in order to have their eyes opened uh, to you know, determine wh whether or not they need to be made jealous you know, by the Gentiles who are coming to Christ um, and what they see there. Uh, so he's, he's really... Uh, just setting a trajectory for the people group is what's happening. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's applying what he said earlier in, in, in Romans 1. And, and you have to note, as I mentioned structure earlier, if, if Paul wanted to just say, listen, God picked these people for heaven and passed over these, he could have really easily said it. Mm -hmm. uh, and he doesn't. Uh, and, and, and the reason is because it's not true. What has happened in this time, it's the partial blinding that you mentioned that Paul uh, uses elsewhere, that uh, that's the judicial hardening. But it's what do they do? Jesus came. They didn't show up. 
right? I mean, generally speaking, they weren't there in Bethlehem. They reject his ministry. Matthew 12, they accuse him of doing miracles by the power of bells above Lord of the Flies. I mean, they have done that. And so his response, and you see it queued up in Matthew 13 when he starts teaching in parables, so that, you know, seeing they won't see, et cetera, is, to, is this judicial hardening. And that's all that's yeah. happened. And God is the potter. He made them from greatness. He bestowed all these blessings. But in response to what they've done, to their rebelliousness, he is withholding mercy. That's it. That's what's happened. The audience is saying, why are so many people not believing? They rejected Jesus and God's withholding his mercy. That's the oh. answer they're getting. And so this, I think this leads us to another series of, of questions um, that, that about the future of Israel and God's plan for, for his people. Um, and so I'm going to read verse 22 and, and uh, through 24, and then I'm going to let you kind of speak a little bit about those passages and, and why having, um, uh, you know, a dispensational view of scripture produces an eschatological understanding that's, that's beneficial to interpretation. And so uh, verse 22 says, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In other, in other words, you know, he's willing to 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 long suffer this this vessel to 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 be patient uh, with them, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. There's that key of of mercy on the the vessels of honor, even us whom he called, uh, he hath called not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so the question is. You know why is a dispensational view of this passage, uh, particularly a dispensational eschatology, important to understanding what is happening here, as it regards you know the current rejection, but but then the future reception of Israel um, in terms of God's plan. Sure, you know our, our dispensational view is is so critical because it tells us that Israel has a future. It tells us that the myriad promises in the Old Testament. They are exactly that. God is a promise keeper. He doesn't take it back. And there's so many passages that speak of a future kingdom. And I'll add, they speak of a future kingdom for Israel even after they reject Messiah. Okay? Because they reject Messiah, Zechariah 13. They get their kingdom, Zechariah 14. This whole idea that somehow this thwarted God's plan and now uh, they've been replaced uh, certainly doesn't work with the prophets, and no Jewish person in the first century thought that. In the Gospels, they right. keep asking Jesus, when's the kingdom going to come? And, and these people in this audience, no doubt, are thinking the same thing. They believe those were promises. Paul, in all, you know, and, and Jesus, frankly, too, in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, if those promises had been revoked, uh, it, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's hard to defend why he wouldn't have told them. Right. It's Paul right. should have used this opportunity in Romans nine to say, wow, what, what, what do you what do you mean a future for Israel and a, and a kingdom and all that? That's gone. Right. This this would have been the place to do it. He doesn't. He ends up saying in chapter 11, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So so it's important to have that in mind, because um, certainly that being the testimony of so much of the scripture that that to read this is is, is in any you know a non dispensational view is. You know, you have to reckon with all those other scriptures. I read this with an expectation um, that God's still dealing with Israel. Uh, he will withhold mercy on Israel, and I may say on the United States. 
But with Israel, he's made promises and he can't go back on them. And, and, right. and so, you know, so here, just looking at the text, you know, what if God was willing to show his wrath, but but he he withholds the wrath for a while? In other words, he shows mercy. Why would God do that? Uh, well, be, because he, he is uh, allowed even these bad events to happen, them to reject the Christ, to bring him to a cross, to demand Barabbas be released instead of Jesus. God frequently in the scripture works through even negative events, Joseph being sold into slavery, right? Daniel being kidnapped, and he brings greatness through it. God doesn't get thwarted by those things, and it's his choice. He, he, could, have, he could have brought immediate judgment. We know he gave a space of time, uh, up to AD 70 at least, uh, but he didn't, and, and that is his prerogative. And that's been Paul's whole argument up till now. He yeah. gets to do that, and he's still doing it. Even at the time Paul writes, he's still showing mercy, even though, and this is key for us, these vessels of wrath, first of all, wrath doesn't mean hell. We tend to associate it with Sodom and Gomorrah, but we need to think about it in a Romans 1 context. It's what we're seeing in our culture. God is giving us over to our own sinful proclivities. In Romans 5, he says, after he brings a conclusion to justification, he says, you've been saved from wrath. You have peace with God. And this fitted to destruction. It's interesting that he'll go on and, and he, you know, he, he'll say that, that he's prepared the vessels of, of mercy, but it doesn't say anything about God preparing the vessels of, of wrath, right? It doesn't, doesn't say that. And, and so um, they're fitted, right? They're lined up for wrath. Why are they lined up for wrath? They rejected God, right? He sent his son. They rejected him. So they've lined themselves up for wrath. That's all that means. And that wrath is going to come. Um, it doesn't mean, and this is important, right? Because some of these people that were currently rejecting Christ, they're, they're part of this nation that's, that's on its way to wrath. Can they still be saved? Absolutely. How do I know that? Mm-hmm. Read the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. The book of Acts has lots of Jewish people who were part of this, fitted for destruction, how do they come out of that? They right. place faith in Christ. Well, and, and Romans uh, chapter 10 uh, gives yeah. the anecdote uh, for the whole dilemma. If you want to mm-hmm. avoid this, um, what he does is say, well, you come, you come to salvation the same way a Gentile would, through faith in Jesus Christ as an individual, uh, you know, uh, deciding for yourself that, that you would rather follow Christ and, and, and to become a Christ follower. So, he gives he gives the anecdote within this passage that's devoted to to, to Israel. Hey Israel, if, if you want salvation, it's yours as an individual. Uh, but God, but God is determined to um, uh, to deal with Israel as a nation in a very particular way. He he will deal with them as a nation, but individuals they have, as you say, the the antidote. And even here mm-hmm. in this passage, you know, he tells us there's these vessels of mercy. Who is he bestowing mercy on? Those who identify with Jesus Christ by faith. He even says that. Even us, who? Not Jews only, but also the Gentiles, the ones he called, the ones that, that received the invitation of the gospel message and uh, responded in faith. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. My name is Blade Spiza. I'm from Living Faith Lee Summit in the Kansas City, Missouri area. And I just want to share a little bit about LFBI. It feels like commercial and I don't want it to be that. I actually want to speak to you just as an individual who loves God and wants to serve God and give your life to Him. LFBI, though it may seem academic, is actually an opportunity for you to have an intimate walk with the Lord. And 
you know, you go through discipleship, you get involved in ministry, and, and as you continue to grow, God gives you stuff, and you begin investing in people. And a lot of times, uh, as you begin investing in people, you, you fail to get fed yourself. And so I know for me, as a growing leader in ministry, I've I found seasons in my life that are really dry, and LFBI has been amazing for me just to be reminded of, about how awesome the Word of God is, and how faithful God has been, and, and how perfect God's Word is for me. And uh, I would just encourage you this semester to to take on a little bit more. Maybe you're thinking, I don't ha I don't have time. <laughs> I, I'm so busy. You know, I, I feel like I'm just doing too much. I, I want to encourage you that LFBI doesn't have to be academic. You can actually approach God's Word devotionally in that time and trust Him to speak to you in the quietness of a classroom setting. If you're on the fence about LFBI, I just want to encourage you to get started uh, by signing up for a class. If you've never done it, I encourage you to, to hop in maybe to a Bible survey class or foundations. Um, if, if you've been doing LFBI for a little while and you understand the workload, take on a little bit more. Step out in faith. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. I, you know, I find it somewhat, um, you know, ironic, I suppose, that, that so often when you run into, uh, you know, reformed believers, that they are convinced that uh, they are the most literal in their view of scripture. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you know, sola scriptura obviously is the, is the historic statement that, that um, you know, many from the Reformation, you know, held to. Uh, and that, that oftentimes there's this view that they have a higher view of the Bible. And yet I, I, I find it interesting that, that they're willing to take all of these promises that are clearly, clearly bestowed uh, upon, upon the nation of Israel, whether it be through Abraham uh, through Moses, through David, uh, the promises that belong to a covenant people, and then then rob them away and apply them allegorically to the church age, to me seems like an abuse and and not and not really a literal approach to the Bible. Well, it, it is, and and we have, you know, nobody sitting there listening to the prophet Zechariah could have concluded anything other than we're being promised a future kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea of taking the, that back, but it also doesn't make sense because the idea has to be that they've lost privileges because of their rejection of Christ. And yet the same prophets predict the very rejection as well as the restoration. Most of the writing prophets end with a restoration passage at the end, like Zechariah 14, but most of the others do. Um, Jonah is a good exception, but most of them enter, uh, end with a, with a restoration passage. So they anticipate Isaiah 53, and they anticipate the, the uh, revival of national Israel. It's prominent in um, Zechariah 12. He says, I'm going to open up a fountain. They're going to look on, on, on me as, as if looking on their only son, him who they pierced. Right, so it's a it's a it's a it's a looking at uh, the Jewish nation looking back on the crucifixion and uh, having a time of national uh, revival. And Paul seems to pick that up in chapter eleven that there will be this this national revival that they'll be grafted back in, and somehow in God's wisdom He will use the Gentiles uh, to bring that about. 
Yeah, and I think I think Acts chapter one is really critical to this view. You know, the the disciples are standing around Christ, and they're like, so when so when is when are you, you know, Christ has been teaching them for 40 days and 40 nights about the kingdom of God. And he's been teaching them that it's a spiritual thing. And they are going to propagate this, this, this gospel message, uh, a message of a, a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they're to, they're to go and teach this to all people. But in the same breath, they're like, well, what about, what about our kingdom? What about our kingdom? So they're making a delineation between the spiritual kingdom and a kingdom that they know is to come, right? That he, they are anticipating a restoration, just as you're speaking, just as the prophets of old were telling them, they're anticipating a future kingdom. And Jesus is like, uh, you know, that's not for you to know right now. So in, you know, in holding back that information, he's implying there's a tr- there is a truth. Israel will be restored. The nation will be brought back into alignment. Um, but you need to be, you need to wait and be patient and devote yourself to the thing that I've taught you to do. And so clearly God has made a promise to his people that, that he is going to set things right. Uh, we understand that to happen through, through wrath. You were just talking about this. Maybe you can speak just a little bit to Jacob's trouble and the idea that God is going to use difficulty and trial to point people back to the Messiah. And that, that, that's, you know, Without us getting into Romans 10 and 11 and talking about regrafting, we don't really have time to do that. Maybe another episode, another time. But but tell us a little bit about God's plan in terms of how he's going to restore Israel to himself and, and remove the blinders. Yeah, well, you, you see this in a couple of places, but it's very explicit at the end of uh, Zechariah chapter 13 that God will use some kind of, of wrath. By wrath, we mean temporal judgment, not something with eternal destiny. And a third of them are going to be left. There's going to it's going to be refined to a, a remnant. There's a number of other passages you can you can put together, but certainly in the Revelation you have the activity of the 144,000. You have the two witnesses who seem to be preaching a gospel. They're killed before uh, the, the public so they can be viewed, and three days later they rise again. It gives you an indication of what their message was. It's being they're like, wait a second, what they said about Jesus may be true because we just saw mm-hmm. it. Right, so there's all these things going on, but but the Bible is clear in, in Zechariah 14 that uh, Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. I mean, it's very specific, and he's going to make a way of escape. What we also read about in uh, Matthew 24, we read about it in the Revelation. Uh, but it's that remnant, and and they are the ones who, in the middle of this wrath, which isn't being you know poured out on them per se. Um, I don't think God is, is is pouring out the wrath to to punish people that have turned to Him. But it's a time when, when wrath is being poured out, the, the, the seven seals and, and so forth. Uh, during that time, there will be a national revival. And a number of Old Testament passages point to the idea of a national a revival. And, and, and Paul deals with it. And they will call upon the name of the Lord. Um, you know, before all the stuff in Matthew 24 and 25 about the future prophecy, Jesus says, I'm not going to come again until you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, they will do that. They will, uh, as a group, Israel, it will be a remnant, but they will universally recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And I think they will pray for deliverance in the middle of that outpouring of wrath all around them and all the, the Antichrist and all those forces. And Jesus is going to personally come and deliver them. Yeah, which is is wonderful. It's wonderful. And um it's good to know that we worship a God that, that keeps his promises and that he has a plan. He's got a plan for all of us. 
Um, I, I love that the that the resurrection of Christ uh, produces so much hope in us, and and um, not just us, you know, the Gentile peoples of the world who've come to to receive Him, but but also for the the, the Jewish people. And and um, I think Romans chapter nine is is a is a wonderful reminder that God's got a plan, and that doesn't you know it does not usurp or negate free will. I mean, I actually think it's a declaration of man's free will, but God's providence, uh, you know, you know, one of the, one of the pastors in our, in our fellowship and, and the Dean of the Bible Institute says that providence has eyes. In other words, you know, God's providence has the ability to foreknow and, and foretell. And, uh, that's what Romans chapter nine is, is, is God's providence on display that despite the fact that Israel has made, uh, decisions counter to uh, the plan that he put in front of them, um, that he still is going to enact a long-term plan that's to their benefit and to their, to their national recovery. And so I think it's a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful passage. It, it, it is. And I think, you know, if you back up big picture from the whole thing, uh, this view has come in and, and Calvinism, of course, is a proponent of it that after the fall, we are spiritually dead, we're corpses and all that. And nowhere in the text does it say say any of that. Right. Um, I, I realize Ephesians 2 talks about being dead in trespasses and sins, but the reality is in Genesis 9 and also in, in, in James, it reaffirms that we in fact are made in the image of God. We were designed for relationship. We're not the same as the animals. And in order for us to have the relationship and fulfill the mandate of creation to take dominion of the planet, we have to have volition. We can't be in the image and likeness of God without volition. He created that. But now we've got the volition side by side with the sin nature. To say the volition went away or was never there to begin with is absurd. It takes a moral high ground and a theory or a uh, sort of this, this proverbial high ground because God has this complete and total sovereignty, yet it creates a God who can't create free will beings in his own image. He either can or can't. Um, I think it is possible for God to make people in his image and likeness so that they have the volition necessary for the relationship because without it there can't be the relationship and that was never lost and and the very fact that there might have to be a a judicial hardening that we've been talking about that in second corinthians chapter 4 that satan does a, a blinding to to those who are rejecting the gospel if you have total depravity all of that's absurd they're yeah, already man. they're already blind they yeah. already can't see anything, and they're already hardened. Right. Yeah, that's that's good logic. These passages, rather than teaching Calvinism, they actually reaffirm, by, by talking right. about hardening, they reaffirm volition of Pharaoh, of Israel, and of these people. They're going to be vessels of mercy if they choose to be vessels of mercy. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Hudson, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it was brief. I know that the passage deserves so much more than what we were able to give it in this time together, but I'm so thankful that you, you took time to just hang out with me and talk about the Bible. Uh, it was a lot of fun and I, I appreciate your insights that God's given you in, in terms of your own study. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed being here and you're right. There's, we were kind of scratching the surface and dealing with mm -hmm. uh, bits of it. And it's a passage. I just encourage everyone, you know, study the whole thing, Follow the context. Make sure you you're connecting it to the other chapters we've touched on, Romans one and stuff. And and God's not trying to hide the truth from us. No, uh, we come to this with a, with a clean slate, 
God is actually trying to encourage his readers. And the last thing that would do that is to say, you know what? Hey, God just didn't pick you. They're being encouraged because they're being told there's a present for the Israel, for the true Israel of God, and there's a future for the nation. Yeah, that's so good. Um, so be- before we close, I-, I would love it if you talked a little bit about deconstructing Calvinism, uh, you know, a little bit more about why you wrote it and um, and maybe what people might expect if they pick the book up. I think what I would have people to know is there are a few ways you can approach this Calvinism issue, right? One of them is historical. There's a rich history there to know. Uh, it's often not what people think. And certainly it's not the case that Calvinists generally know their own history. Um, the history there is worth study. Uh, where does it come from? It does not come from John Calvin. It doesn't come from the uh, the uh, uh, Reformation, mm-hmm. and nor was it really invented by, by Augustine, although he's the one that brought it into Christianity. So then second, there might be kind of a philosophical approach. Your view of God, your view of the scriptures, um, this is something that needs to be a livable philosophy. Mm-hmm. Is it a livable philosophy to believe that most of the people in the world are not elect, including uh, uh, several of your children, presumably? Right. Yeah. If only the elect are saved and the elect are what, 10, 15, 20 percent of the population, I should expect that more than half of my friends and family are not elect. Um, you know, is it a livable philosophy? And I would right. intend that I've never met a Calvinist that actually lives like a Calvinist in that sense. But but it's it's an approach you can take. And then, of course, there's the exegetical approach, which is let's deal with the verses. That's what I wanted to do. It's difficult in one book to even you know, one book's not going to exhaust any of those, so it's certainly not going to be able to cover them all. But what I wanted to do was was to um, help people to not only see what I thought the text meant, the, the most popular proof text and some of the less popular ones, but what's the approach? Uh, the book's longer. I wish it could be really, really short, but the reality is rightly dividing the Word of God is hard work. If you're going to look at the context for Romans 9, uh, if you got nothing else out of today, you should realize you kind of start Romans 1. Well, that's a lot of hard work. Yeah. But it's the only way you do proper Bible exegesis. And and so what I've tried to do is do that exegesis, uh, even if you don't um, you know agree with everything, and I would expect anybody would, you can say, well, he's trying to get his hands around the context and ask the question, you know, why would this teaching be here? Why just out of the blue in Acts 13.48? Would, you know, Paul, you know, Luke writes, you know, all those who were, quote, appointed to eternal life believed. Why in that one place and nowhere else in the whole book do we have unconditional election pop up? Right. You have to you have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with that. Uh, And it's hard work. So I wanted to help people do that to not only see a a different non-Calvinist interpretation of key verses, but to get the handle of the approach, because. Doesn't matter what I think. You need to learn to to sift in the Word of God uh, deeply, uh, and and see it and see it for yourselves. And in my experience, more often than not, that doesn't get done, and and it needs to. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate the hard work that you've done, and uh, we're grateful for the example that you are. Um, you know, you know, we don't have any affiliation outside of the fact that I discovered your book and and I I heard you on some podcasts. But it's really wonderful to find uh, kindred spirits as it concerns this topic. But, but like you're saying, greater than that, bigger than that, is an approach to Scripture that says, you know, we as believers, we can understand the Bible. We just mm-hmm. have to be willing to study it. We just have to be willing to divide it and do the hard work of, of 
of seeking God and studying his Bible according to the principles that he gives us, not the principles that we impose on the text. Um, and so I appreciate that, that kind of, um, um, you know, pure approach to Bible study and, and the way that you exemplify that both in the book, but also in this interview today. Well, thank you for having me on. And I, uh, I just uh, pray everybody is, is blessed by our time talking about God's word. It's always a good use of our time. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Hudson. And, and we want to thank you as well, the listener. Um, you know, like we just got done saying, uh, we should all be responsible for learning how to study the Bible. And so uh, for that very reason, we're hanging out today, uh, looking at Romans chapter nine, an often difficult passage. People misunderstood it, uh, misunderstand it, misread it quite often. Uh, we wanted to take some time to show you how uh, one should read within uh, within a context, within a greater context. And I think that we achieved that to some degree today. But but we desire for you to know God's word, which is why we want to invite you to attend LFBI. Uh, visit LFBI.org. Uh, look over our program of study. Uh, check out our statement of faith. Check out our vision. Uh, but we want to invite people to be a part of what we're doing and, and to study the Bible with us, to, to grow confident in their understanding of what the Word of God says, but also in your ability to minister it. Uh, if it's not alive and active in your life, if, if it doesn't produce change in your character and the way that you approach the world, uh, then, then it's stagnant and it can, and it can produce pride, uh, as we talked about today. And so we want to see you uh, activate your faith, believe God at His very Word, and, and then live it out for His mission's sake. And so Living Faith Bible Institute serves to do that. Uh, you can learn God's word while remaining in the discipleship ministries of your local church. We don't want to pull you out of church. We want to keep you right where you're at, where you can practice the things that you're learning in the context uh, of the ministry that God's put in front of you. And so uh, please, please consider uh, this resource. Uh, $40 a credit hour um, makes it very affordable. And then online learning is, is very flexible. And so we've done that in order to supplement and to come and, and, and make learning God's word easy for you. But we love you. We're grateful for you listening. We're grateful for you hanging out with Hudson and I. And uh, we, we recommend you pick up his book, Deconstructing Calvinism. But with all that said, uh, we hope to hang out with you again uh, next Monday for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.